Well, we are beginning a, a series in Ecclesiastes. Last week we spoke about verse 1 of this interesting and different book. It primed the pump for us so that we would see what we might be learning in this uh, verse-by-verse exposition. It's going to take us several months to get through this book in the Old Testament, and I hope that you will stick with us through that. The book of Ecclesiastes is the story, as we spoke last week, of one man's journey. A journey to determine whether the ways of the world can truly satisfy a person. The narrator and the main character of the story is, in the Hebrew, it's pronounced Koholeth, but in the English translation it means the preacher, a character who represents King Solomon uh, in all his wisdom and in all his authority. And here he is beginning his journey, and as we have our scriptures open to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to see how he frames out this first leg of the adventure. Starting in verse 2, The preacher says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around And around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind remains or returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been done. In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Though heavy and difficult, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the study of his word. The question that Koholeth is asking, the question that's going to drive much of our dialogue over the next several months, what is the point of life? That is the big picture question. And in some ways, it is the question of the whole book. Koholeth, the preacher, is a man who believes in God. We learned that last week. This is not a man who is a free agent, who's just going to believe whatever somebody convinces him to believe. This is a man who knows that there is a God, He's grown up with a trust in the Creator, but the questions have piled up, and so he has a burning desire now to know if satisfaction and fulfillment can truly only be found in God, or can it be found in the things that people try to do to fill their own hearts. This book is the preacher's journey of experience. He's going to make every effort to try the ways of the world out and see if they satisfy him. The preacher begins his journey with what is frankly a bleak hypothesis. He's got an idea of how this is going to turn out. He's not going into it blind, is he? Even before the question has been explored, he makes a preliminary assessment and he says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now that word vanity dominates the book of Ecclesiastes. It shows up over 30 times throughout the book. It's present in every chapter except chapter 10. So it is important that we make sure that we have an idea of what this word means. In the original Hebrew, it was pronounced hebel, 
And there's a literal meaning to that word. Hebel means vapor. It means a mist. And I want you to imagine walking out of a cabin in the morning just as the sun is rising. You look upon a vast field of grass and you see that there is a, like a mist that has settled on that field. That is the word Hebel. It is this idea of some sort of moisture that you can see with your eyes. But as the sun rises and as the heat increases through the day, that fog does not stay. The heat causes it to dissipate, it disappears. So there is inherent in this word a sense of change, of transience, that we're going to discuss later in a different sermon. Uh, but think about this vapor, this mist, as being something that looks like it's there. But if you were to try to go and collect it, if you were to try to go and put your hands on it, you wouldn't be able to grasp it. So figuratively, this is referring to anything that is like a substance that cannot be grasped. It is as close to nothing as you can get. And yet it is not nothing. Because you can see it. So there's something there. It carries the allure of relevance, of substance. But ultimately, the, the real meaning behind this word is worthlessness. Vanity points to a pointless endeavor. It, it is nothing but hot air. You might have read the classic Christian novel, Paul Bunyan's um, masterpiece, Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is an extended allegory. Every single thing that happens to this character whose name is Christian, it's pretty straightforward. He wants you to understand all the symbols. It's not like some mystery here. But this man, Christian, is a young, naive individual who starts out on a journey. And we, we see him understand that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and give his life to the Lord. And the rest of the story is the, the, the tale of him going from this world, which is falling apart and dying, to his ultimate home, which is heaven. And so along the way, he encounters various trials and tribulations. He, uh, he, he makes friends with different individuals, some who are a blessing to him and some who hinder his progress. And this man, Christian, and, a, and a, one of his compatriots, who's, all, who's named Faithful, are traveling along. At one point, they come to this massive city that's full of light and sound and busyness where you can buy anything you want, where you can have anything that your heart desires. And what is the name of that city? Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair, a place where the, the deepest desires of man's heart can be purchased for enough money. And Christian and faithful are arrested in Vanity Fair. Why? Because they are dissatisfied with everything that they see. They don't go along with what everybody is celebrating because they know that it is empty, that it is formless, that it has no real value. And so this is, is what we call to mind as the preacher starts off his journey by saying, vanity of vanity. He looks around the world and sees so much what appears to be substance that has no real vitality to it. I want to make a note here on the use of a literary device. The writer here says, vanity of vanities is a repetition. And then he says the exact same thing again, vanity of vanities. And then he says, all is vanity. Five times in that one verse, you have the same word repeated over and over again. What is he trying to do? In the Hebrew language, that kind of repetition is, is meant to have you multiply the understanding of the meaning of the word. We've heard it before in other ways, haven't we? When the Lord God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle, a place of dwelling where the presence of God's spirit is supposed to reside, that one part of the tabernacle where people really can't go into, that's, that's pure and holier than any other place, it is called the Holy of Holies, right? Holy of Holies, the multiplication. He wants us to understand that this is not just any old holy place. This is the holiest of places on earth. 
When we listen to the titles of Jesus and we hear that he is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that means that no other dignitary or leader could ever compare to his authority, could compare to his leadership. He is the penultimate leader. The Song of Songs, another book written by Solomon, is a wisdom book, sometimes called the Song of Solomon, but traditionally it's called Song of Songs. And this is a story of a beautiful picture of love between a man and his wife that is also in its own right a parallel to the love that God has for his people, for his church. And so this device is applied here in the negative sense. That around the world, as he looks at everything that is available to him, he sees not only vanity, but vanity of vanities. It is perfectly vain. To the preacher, there is no better term to accurately describe the pursuit of happiness and meaning, uh, and meaning apart from God. He didn't just thumb through the thesaurus and pick the first word or the nice, nicest sounding word. He picked the one that would accurately represent what it's like to seek meaning apart from God. There appears to be hope in the world. There appears to be satisfaction and substance and significance. But in the end, it will all slip through our fingers. The promise of satisfaction never truly materializes until we turn our eyes heavenward. So we get the sense very early in this work that Ecclesiastes is a kind of expose whereby the empty promises of this temporal life that we live in are dragged out into the light and are revealed to be the empty things that they are. Though many view Ecclesiastes as a dark and brooding book, as a depressing, a depressing and skeptical book, if it is aiming to expose empty lies that often entangle us and make us trust things that we don't have any business trusting, then there is a great mercy in God giving us a book like this. He is looking out for our hearts when he gives us this book. You might note that the preacher does not say much is vanity, does he? There is so much vanity polluting what is otherwise a good world. That's not the message he sends here in verse 2. He says that all is vanity. All. Now does he really believe that? Aren't there good things in the world? Is he really saying what is on his heart? Is everything without exception vanity? Now last week we looked ahead a little bit, didn't we? We turned to the last chapter and we got a peek at the true heart of the preacher who's telling the story. We learned that ultimately he doubles back around to where he began, that he never truly loses faith in the Lord God, but that this journey is meant to help us see that we all need to end up in that place. Fear the Lord God and keep his commandments. And so we're going to look a little bit further here because there's, a, there's another verse, verse 3, that helps us to understand what this all is vanity means. Look at verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you like to underline things, underline under the sun. This is another phrase that is going to pop up again and again for us as we study through this book. When the preacher says under the sun, He's making a distinction between what is under the sun and what is, from man's perspective, over the sun or beyond the sun. Under the sun means everything from the material world that we live in, set apart and separate from the things of heaven, the things of God. So when he says that all is vanity, he's not talking about all that exists. He's talking about all that we can find that might satisfy us, that suggests it could satisfy us, 
in this world apart from the grace of God. Later on, we're going we're to see another phrase. It's under heaven, which is a contrast to this phrase, under the sun. But that which is under the sun is that which is material and fading away, that which one day will be judged by the ultimate judgment of the Creator. Can you picture uh, how hard it must be to serve as a soldier in war? I've, uh, I've heard of stories of people who, in the context of fighting in battle, tried to live in such a way that that's all they knew of life. They were going to live in this little microcosm of war and they were going to think about the world totally different so long as they had a gun in their hands. And if they ever got back to civilian life, then they'll, they'll try to go back to living the regular life that they used to live. But while they were a soldier, to be the best soldier they thought they could be, they totally blocked out the rest of the world. They became killing machines. They became tools to be used. The problem is you can't separate life like that. And these soldiers who come back from the battlefield, having acted as if their, their behavior there on the battlefield wouldn't have any implication in their civilian life, often find themselves crippled by what they have done. They, they find themselves unable to cope now with this civilian life because they behaved as if it didn't exist. But now they get back to it and they have to be accountable to it. And, and that is, in some ways, how human beings try to live. They want to live in this little microcosm of the material world apart from heavenly things. Thinking they can just live the life they want to live now. They're just going to pursue the desires of their flesh. They're going to be their own little king for a while. And then maybe one day far down the road, they'll trust the Lord God. They'll seek Him out. Or maybe at the very end of life, if they die and then they come before the Lord God, they'll be like, oh, okay, I guess I do need the Lord God. But it doesn't work like that. When we try to find our fulfillment, when we try to walk apart from the Lord God, that only leads to destruction. And so we can't afford to live this life that is only under the sun. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. To what degree is that declaration of verse 2 true? And that's a very important question because if life is nothing but vanity, if life under the sun has no true meaning and purpose, how does that affect the way that we live? What kind of a world is this going to become if there is nothing but vanity? and the appearance of meaning when there is no true meaning. In the verses that follow, the preacher identifies three specific problems that are born from this condition of vanity. And so we're going to look at each of them carefully this morning. The first is this. If, if it's all vanity, then what is to be gained by trying to live a meaningful life? What's to be gained? What's the point? Why should I put effort into living? Secondly, if life is nothing but vanity, then how can my man and, and woman hope to find rest in this world? How can we find any reprieve? How can, we, how can we lift this burden that is so heavy upon our shoulders? And thirdly, if it's all vanity, then how can we escape the monotony of repetition of day after day, struggle, struggle, struggle? How can we break out of this empty cycle? Let's look at the first one. If everything under the sun is vanity, then what is to be gained by trying to live a meaningful life? We see here in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You don't need a preacher with a master's degree in a pulpit to tell you that life is not easy, do you? 
And you get up and you live it every day. Nobody comes and just hands you life on a silver platter. There is struggle in this life. There is turmoil. And there is heartache. There is striving. To live involves much labor. Emotional, mental, physical exertion. And sometimes even hardship. And suffering. And trial. To keep putting the effort into basic human survival and the perpetuation of life on earth, there's got to be some kind of a reason, doesn't there? There's got to be something that sparks life in you, that, that keeps you going day in and day out. Some meaningful purpose to go through all of this trouble that we call life. Here in verse 3, the preacher turns his thoughts to the generational cycles of man. Each generation comes and each generation goes, but the world remains Remarkably consistent, almost as though it were completely oblivious to what man does or does not do. We see the preacher here pulling back and realizing that so much in this world doesn't care if we're here or not. It's just going to continue to go doing the things that God has set it to do. I think in some sense each generation of human beings wonders if theirs will be the generation that makes a difference in the world. We all see the problems that are around us and each generation says, well, maybe my time, maybe my generation will make a difference, will make an impact. Right now in Placerville, my father-in-law, my grandfather-in-law rather, uh, Bill, is living his final days on earth. Bill is 96. Bill loves the Lord. He has loved the Lord for decades. And we praise God for the impact that he's had on Missy's family. So many people in that family can can tie their belief in Jesus to the testimony of this man. But though he was a physical education teacher for many years, he's got a, he's got a, a, a doctorate in PE. Did you know you could do that? You can't anymore. But he, he did way back when you could. And, and he was a tennis pro. I mean, the guy was fit as a fiddle for so many years. But eventually that age just catches up to you. And whatever hardware God gave you, no matter how genetically blessed you are, 96 is 96. And it's starting to fail him. He's having these mini strokes and he's starting to lose grip with things and we don't think he's going to be with us much longer. But Bill was a part of what is sometimes called the greatest generation. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that term, the greatest generation. It, it points to a segment of people who lived in America from roughly 1910 to about the end of the, the Second World War. And this generation is called sometimes the greatest generation because of the degree of hardship it endured and survived and because of the great victories that were won in their lifetime. And so those who were born in this great generation had to go through what's called the Great Depression in America when the economy just went completely south and there was a scarcity of goods and the dollar wasn't worth what it was before and people had almost nothing. And by sheer willpower, many had to just scrape to get by. And many didn't survive, but the ones who did came out of it wiser and tougher and with greater character than, than they had before. And then after that Great Depression, of course, the world is rocked by this reality of World War II, and a great evil is revealed as Hitler and other nations began to try to oppress and overcome. And this generation who survived the Depression then is turn to, to to rise up and to take up arms and to fight against this evil for the benefit of the world. And so this generation is often lauded as a very special group of people. And they did amazing things, but we're not 50 or 60 years removed from their greatest impact and influence. 
And how far have we gotten from where they were? All their effort, all their work, all the good that they did to the world, and yet we live in a world today where sin is being celebrated as good, where millions are starving, where there are terrorists who are bombing and killing hundreds of people at a time. We live in a world that is still desperate and hurting. The greatest generation didn't solve the problem because the best of what man has to offer is not enough. If there is nothing to be gained from enduring the vanity of this futile life, then there's no compelling motivation for meaningful living. As, as much as I hate to say this, without Christ, I don't know why more people don't just get drunk every day or don't just sit around smoking pot all the time. If there is no meaning to life and no ultimate goal, if there's no ultimate reason for living, then man's heart is going to spiral out into despair. And eventually there is no motivation to try to better oneself. There is no motivation to try to be good to your society, to be a productive member of the civilization. If there's no real meaning that transcends the doldrums of everyday life, then the best that we can hope to do is latch on to something temporary and not really meaningful and then convince ourselves and deceive ourselves into thinking that it is valuable so that at least we have the illusion of being meaningful and good. And we see so many people who are passionate about things that really they ought not be passionate about, things that don't deserve their life's attention and devotion and the devotion of their resources. If there is nothing to be gained from enduring the vanity of futile life, and there's no compelling motivation to be moral either. If life is nothing more than what we experience, nothing more than our perspective on what we take in by our senses, then what is stopping us from just making life whatever we have the power to make it? Why don't we just live the way we want to live and, and let anarchy reign? You see what great things are at stake here. These are massive questions that really get to the core of why we are alive, why we're even on this planet. And this kind of vague pointlessness is a direct consequence of living life in this under-the-sun mentality. If you divorce man from the source of his true meaning, if you divorce man from, from the Lord God, the Creator who made him for a purpose, and you try to let man establish meaning and significance on his own, all the things that he tries to gain will eventually equate to vapor, to vanity in the light of the brevity of life. And the great overwhelming cycle of the natural world just keeps on chugging along, doesn't it? It keeps on going as if what man does or does not do doesn't even really matter. Morality doesn't just answer the what question. What do I do? What do I say? What do I wear? It has to answer the why question, doesn't it? What is the reason behind the way that we choose to live our lives? Even the right actions can be done for the wrong why, can't they? If I seek to put God first, if I honor my mother, my mother and my father, if, if I never lie, if I'm faithful to my wife, but I do all of those things because I hope that by performing better than my fellow human beings, that God will like me more and save a place in heaven for me, then I've got it all wrong. I've done a lot of good things for the wrong reasons. And I'm mistaken if I think that's going to give me the golden ladder to heaven. 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But if I hold the Lord's name with honor, and I never murder, and I do not covet my neighbor's goods, and I seek to honor the Sabbath by regularly putting the other things in my life aside so that I can worship and enjoy God, and I do it simply because God is worthy, and I have been shown such amazing grace by this worthy and loving God, then isn't that beautiful? Same actions with a different intention, and there's so much joy to that, that we are just reciprocating a loving grace that God has given to us, not because we want to buy some favor from God, but because he's worthy and he is good and we've been discovered by him. He has pulled us to himself. Two people doing the same things for a different why. The word because is incredibly important, isn't it? What do we do? But why do we do it? We do it because of God's glory. Islamic terrorism has the wrong because, doesn't it? People who are devout and who are determined to stand for what they believe in, and they're blowing themselves up for a God that isn't real. They serve a God who is a dictator, who is not a father, who is not loving and merciful and patient, but a God who rules with an iron fist, a God who is much more like man than he is like God. The wrong why leads to chaos and heartache and further destitution. These school shootings that we seem to read about every month in the papers, they often happen because frustrated young people cannot find a compelling why for life. There's no reason for them to live, and they're taught in their schools that they're nothing but a more advanced animal, so why not act like an animal? Are we very surprised that people have gotten to the place where they are today? In the absence of real purpose, the question starts to mutate. It starts to change. Instead of asking why, people just start asking, why not? Right? There's no moral absolutes. There's no absolute truth. There's no benevolent God who has a purpose for our lives. So why not? Any number of radical actions can be justified. Or we can just throw justification out the window and think as long as I want to do it, I should be able to do it. Now, I hate to tell you this, but the preacher's not yet at the point of answering all these questions that we're dealing with today, is he? He has not come to resolution. But before we're done today, we have to have some sort of resolution because this is a sermon of truth. We can't just speculate all day about where meaning comes from, so we will get there. We're going to need to draw some conclusions about the data that the preacher is collecting. But before that, the second question. If everything is under the sun is vanity... How can man find rest? How can man find reprieve? Especially in light of that first question, if there's no meaning, then at least how can I feel less stressed about all of this meaninglessness? In light of the temporary, insignificant lifespan of man, the preacher's attention is turned to the earth around him. He looks around at the creation. These facets of God's design which seem to soldier on consistently with familiarity in contrast to man who can't seem to make this lasting impact. And so in verses 4 through 7, you read about the solar cycle, about how the, the sun rises always in the east. It travels across the sky. It always sets in the west. 
and then it hurries back to the place it began again. And there is nothing that you or I can do to stop that or change it in any way whatsoever. It just keeps going and going and going. And then he talks about how the, the, the wind cycle, the thermal cycle of earth is evident to man. It's not that winds can't change one day to the next, but there's a general flow to things. Sailors rely on that to get where they're going. We can track it and measure it in the region of earth that he lived in. The winds would come from the north and go to the south. They would circle back around and they would find their way back to the north again. And then you have the same powerful gust again and again and again consistently. They aren't things that man can really stop or change. I was talking to somebody uh, just this past week who's interested in storm chasing. It's a weird hobby, you know. They like tornadoes a lot. They like to study them. And they said, you know what, We've, we can, we're going to solve tornadoes. Man's going to figure out a way to stop these things because all you have to do to stop a tornado is drop the temperature where that tornado is trying to go into several degrees and it'll create a front that causes it to turn around and go the other direction. And I thought to myself, one problem here. God is the only one with his hand on the thermostat, right? Man can do a lot of great things, but can we turn up the temperature? Can we turn down the temperature? No. These are things that are beyond our control. And it, it makes me laugh how much man thinks that he's in charge of the way this world runs, of the ecology of earth. When God is the one who calls the shots, he goes on to talk about the precipitation cycle, about how all streams eventually find their way to the sea, but the sea never seems to be filled, right? It seems like it's perpetually thirsty. All these waters flow down from the mountains and they enter into the ocean, but the ocean doesn't really rise. It doesn't get bigger. It's never full. And I have no doubt that the preacher, as he's writing these words, is trying to stir in us a reminder that humans do something like that, don't we? Constantly trying to fill our lives with some new satisfaction, some new thing to distract us from the reality of vanity that's all around us. And we want to be full, but no matter how much we put in, we don't realize there's a bigger hole on the other side draining it all out again. There is nothing in this world under the sun that stops that. All of these cycles represent, in an interesting perspective, God's provision for us, don't they? How would life be if those cycles didn't keep going? And yet the preacher's frustrated by them in a way because they represent a, a permanence that isn't true really of humanity, that, that we can't change things or make an impact on the world like we would like to. God's provision is good for us. If the sun didn't come up and go down, then things would get too hot. The sun just lingered in the air. Eventually all your crops would burn out in just a matter of hours and things would, would, would fall apart. So God is good to us through these wind cycles and through the cycle of water that purifies uh, this lifeblood that you need to drink every single day. But those things don't satisfy you either. Nothing that God has made is enough to really fill that hole, that void in your heart. It can feel to man as if he is living on a more complex version of the simple hamster wheel. Continuous motion, continuous expenditure of energy, zero progress. What is to be gained? If nothing, why can't I at least find some true rest? Verse 8, all things are full of what? Weariness. A man cannot utter it the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Viewing the ongoing processes of the world, which are beyond our control, 
which man may try to harness but cannot stop or seriously alter. It's a humbling reminder that life is not something we can hope to fully command. Being in charge of you is in large part an illusion. It is like vanity, isn't it? The natural processes of the world seem to be ongoing without any real sense of completion or resolution, without progress, without conclusion. It is no wonder that man sees their relatively small existence as vanity and striving after the wind. You, uh, if you're a little bit older, you might remember a song. It was written in 1977 by a band called Kansas, Dust in the Wind. How many of you have heard that song before? It's got a very, a very uh, well-known guitar piece that plays over and over again in that. And you wouldn't expect a song like that to hit the top 40 talks about how man's life is like dust blowing in the wind, about how inconsequential it is, and, and how in a sense he's echoing the words of the preacher here, that life here under the sun, if that's all you're looking at, is vanity. What's the point of it all? You live, you breathe, you eat, you sleep, you go back to sleep, you wake up the next day, you do it all over again, and eventually you die. And maybe people will remember you for a little while, but eventually your name slips from history. What is the point of life? That song makes it on the top 40 because as much as we would like to avoid these questions, they're floating around in everybody's head. You can turn your head away, but eventually they will catch up with you again. Something big will happen in your life. Something that requires an answer. You will lose a loved one. You will get that diagnosis you did not want to get. Your mortality will be made plain to you. And those questions will come and knock him. And when they do... Where are your answers at? You're going to get them from here under the sun? Weariness and dissatisfaction are some of the most pressing challenges that face man in the cycle of life. Consider some of the ways that man, frustrated by the seemingly futile life that they are destined to live, attempts to attain rest for himself. If the hamster wheel just keeps on a spinning, how do people find rest in the midst of that? Chemical rest is one of the most popular ways to do it today, isn't it? Fill your body with something that's going to change the way you think, that's going to derail your thought processes. Either that's found in a bottle or you're going to inhale it somehow or you're going to inject it somehow. You put something inside of you that's going to make you numb. So at least you don't have to think about these questions you don't have answers for. We see it all over the world. It is epidemic no matter what country you're in. Others turn to the philosophy of, well, I'm just going to rest now, no matter what it costs me tomorrow. And they just decide to give up. They stop being responsible. They just let the current take them along. They decide to be lazy. They decide to just play video games all day or to let somebody else take care of their responsibilities. That might feel like rest, but the world does not stop moving just because you have. The hamster wheel keeps turning. And if you take a little nap on the bottom of the hamster wheel, before you know it, you're falling from the top. Life catches up with you. And now, what was a heartache and a burden has now become a crisis for you. We can't just put off reality till tomorrow and rest today. It will catch up with us. A third way that people deal with this apparent vanity is through fantasy. This human brain that God has equipped us with can make up a lot of things, can't it? 
And so we dive into these stories, these ideas, this Hollywood that is happy to pump out idea after idea that you can wrap yourself up in and get carried away in. Meanwhile, the world keeps going the way it's going, but you're not really dealing with the real world. You're dealing with your fantasy world. It might be sports. You're wrapped up in these artificial victories that aren't truly real victories in life, but they feel like it because of all the rules that everyone's agreeing to follow and, and abide by. Uh, other people are caught up in online persona. They want to be somebody they're not. So they create a different them and they live it out in chat rooms or message boards or in their social media. There is so much fantasy in the world, it's amazing that nothing, anything at all happens in the real world these days. And let me tell you, the person who has battled with suicidal thoughts has no doubt wrestled with this idea of whether life on earth is even worth the effort. Some have become so exhausted by this struggle of life that seems to have no rest that they turn to death as their only hope for rest. There is a better rest, friends. There is real reprieve from the cycle of life that wears us thin. Everyone should be asking these questions and seeing the same problems. Many are not, but I come to tell you today that there is a better rest. Christian, the burdens that we've been talking about today have weighed upon your shoulder at different times. You have felt the strain of them. You might be feeling them right now, and that's completely understandable. But do not despair. In Christ, you have been given a solution to all of this weariness that plagues the mind of man, which cannot look beyond what is right in front of him. If we cast our gaze beyond the sun, if we look past what is right here on the material earth, God has revealed to us what is true and what is good. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7 through 7 is such a great encouragement to the burdened soul. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's like the opposite of vanity, isn't it? That's the opposite of this mist that seems real, but you can't grab it, and when you try, it disappears. This is something concrete, and it's being kept in heaven for you, says verse 4. Verse 5 says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where is our hope? It ain't found in me. It is not found in the things of this world. It is not a material solution that you are looking for. It is found in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, broken and shed for you. The fact that he died to all of this vanity and then rose again and promised that all who trusted in, in him would one day rise in like manner shows that there is a promise of victory over the meaninglessness of life. And there is only one gate to get to that promise. And that gate is Jesus Christ. 
the perfect one who walked without sin in this world, who owed the Father zero debt, and yet paid our debts in our place because of love. Verses 9 and 10 begin to work towards another dilemma that must be addressed. If everything under the sun is vanity, then how can we escape the monotony of repetition? Listen to what the preacher says in verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. When we entered into this world, when God gave us our first breaths, we knew nothing. And we experienced this new reality through our senses, didn't we? We opened our eyes and there was light all around us. And these different colors and images were hard for us to process, but we took them in. Day by day, we took them in. And our little minds began to work at putting them in categories and separating out what these images meant to us. We heard sounds echoing off our eardrums. And at first, it was just noise. But we started to hear the same sounds over and over again. And our dopey moms and dads were making sure we heard these sounds and were saying them and mouthing them to us. And we began to learn that these sounds correspond with meaning. And these little children are so full of wonder because everything to them is new, isn't it? But little children grow up. And little children realize that eventually they start to see that everything has a pattern. And they start to see that everything that once seemed new to them just repeats again and again and again. And the packaging might change a little bit, but you're getting the same product. And as we get to be adults, so much of that discovery, so much of that sense of awe and wonder begins to become stale to us. And we want something new. We want to learn something. But it just seems that we're getting the same thing recycled to us again and again. The same heartaches, the same struggles, the same backsliding. We begin to lose that spark of discovery and the novelty of life wears off. And this is usually handled by the human heart in one of two ways. Most people just settle. Say, this is what I'm going to get. This is all there is. I guess I might as well just find little bits and pieces along the path that I like or that I'm interested in until they wear off and then I'll try to replace that with something else. We reorder our thinking to accept a life of vanity, trading in our wonder and settling for making the most of the bleakness that we can. And so we get excited when we get a new car. But eventually that car becomes older and a better model comes out and our dissatisfaction seeps back in. But we just sort of settle and hope that the next thing makes us happy too. That's one way of dealing with it. But there is a much better way, friends. We need to learn to get over the sun. We need to realize that the answers to our questions are not found in this natural, falling apart world that we live in. They're found in the heavenly one. The answers to our problems are in the hands of the Lord God. This one who is apart from us and different from us. This one who is new. 
This one who cannot be replicated in the world. This one that is unique and doesn't think the way we think and doesn't talk the way we talk. This God who is alone in holiness and uniqueness. Do not let the humbling truth that we can't solve these problems ourselves trick you into thinking that they are unsolvable problems or that they're not worth solving. We were made for something more than we are experiencing here in this futile life. Let this dissatisfaction of the created world and its limits, let it not discourage you. Let it catapult you into a greater desire to get beyond what is decaying and falling apart here. May it cause in your heart a great motivation to want more of this God who is the one new thing, who is the only thing worth pursuing that can truly satisfy, that can truly quench our hearts. The one that you are designed to worship is the answer to all of life's big questions. Elsewhere in the scriptures, King Solomon's going to write another book. It's called Proverbs. And he writes it to his son. He writes it to his son who he expects one day will take the throne from him. And he wants to prepare that son for life in this same very world, this very same world of despair and heartache and vanity that he knows very, very well. And so what does he write in that very first chapter of Proverbs? In verse 7 he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I'll say that again. The fear of the Lord, the right respect the great reverence for this God who is different and other and outside of this globe that we live on. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We can come to a book like this and we can even be angry that God would put this in our face. That he would make us look at this vanity over and over again. We might feel depressed from reading the story of a man not being able to find answers in the world, but there's a different way to look at it. Let us rejoice instead at the plain proof that all that we've been trying to perhaps fill our lives with is nothing anyway. And let us seek instead to fill our lives with the truth of Jesus Christ. The reality that when we are saved in Him, when His grace has invaded our hearts, that we can be made new creation. And that all the vanity around us doesn't have to rule us. It doesn't have to crush us. That through Christ we can rise above that that we can have a joy everlasting. We can have a living hope that cannot be extinguished by our circumstances or by the things that we go through in life. Let us learn not to despise this wisdom and instruction, even if it shows us our weaknesses, even if it reveals to us the painful limitations of the heart, but rather let us rejoice that there is one who is completely without weakness, that there is one who is mighty in every instance where we are weak. Let us worship that God. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, thank you for being the God of glory, for being the answer that we seek. God, we, we want to confess to you that we sometimes seek that answer or that rest or that comfort somewhere else. Father, true rest comes in Sabbath. It comes as we approach you with humble hearts, willing to set aside all of the trappings of this world, which the preacher is trying to prove to us are not worth our affections, Lord God. Let us find our true rest in you. As we see how much better you are than the things that this world has to offer, let us rejoice in worshiping you, the true God. Let us not try to exalt ourselves or prove to the other people in this world that we can solve the riddle on our own, but let us instead join in the chorus of saints throughout the history of time who have had their hearts turned 
who have been made soft by your spirit, Lord God. Let us rejoice in the things of truth. God, I pray that you would guard our hearts against depression and despair as we go through this book, Lord God. Let us see the difficult truths that are laid bare in it, but let us also see at the same time what exists above the sun, the truth that there is a God in heaven who has made a way for us to come near to him, and that is through Jesus Christ the Son. Thank you, God, for the fellowship we can have in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.